Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvroski. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvroski. On this week's episode, we welcome author Gary Ryan to the show to talk about his book, Disruption Leadership Matters. Gary has some incredible stories, some incredible tips to share with us about how leaders around the world have really leaned into Leadership 2.0 throughout the pandemic and the incredible results that they're getting. So definitely check this one out. It's an incredible episode. If you haven't yet, please hit subscribe to Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with any leaders in your life. This one is an inspiring episode, so definitely share it with the leaders that you know that are looking for different strategies to employ right now. And for all things Leadership 2.0, Leadership Mindset Strategy Coaching, Leadership Development Programs, DEI, Breaking Burnout, and psychological safety, head over to EliteHighPerformance.com and you can find it all there. Everyone, I really appreciate you listening so much and spending your valuable time with us. And here's the interview with Gary Ryan. We are back. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski and as always, the yin to my yang. Susan Hobson. Susan, how are you? I am fabulous. I am super excited about our guest today. So let's get this party started, shall we? Let's get the party started. And as always, I want to bring a little nugget up front. And I was talking to someone the other day, and they asked me whether I was angry or frustrated with the leaders that I had in my career that caused me the pain that I had. Mm -hmm. And her thesis was, is without anger, there is no passion to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I said to her that I am no longer in that space anymore. Mm -hmm. I used to be, and now I see it for what it is. They had their own pain, and it was manifesting and hurting Mm. me and my pain. Mm -hmm. Mm. And Mm -hmm. as I healed, I see that they need to heal, and they haven't healed yet. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so that's where I want people to be today is it's not always about anger and resentment is there is a step beyond that that you can attain that still allows you to be on a mission to change it, but it doesn't have that hate behind that mission. Mm. Mm -hmm. Which is a really important thing. Right. Because if you're to try to come at that leader and reach that leader and communicate to that leader what the needs I've met are in your experience, if you're doing that with anger, then that's not going to be received. Right. But if you have the capacity for compassion, I think that mm. makes that conversation feel a lot safer for that leader to step into. Absolutely. And we can get into the pocket why later, but we have a special <laughs> guest. From Down Under, the author of Disruption Leadership Matters, Gary Ryan is joining us. Gary, how are you? Great. Thanks, Rob and Susan. Great to be on board, and I'm uh, really looking forward to today's conversation with you both. Oh, we're we're absolutely looking forward to this one, too. We should have hit record as soon as we jumped on the mic. Oh, um, yeah. But I always say that. So, Gary, before we get started on, you know, the book and some of the stories from that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, a couple of important things is I'm number nine of 11 children. 
and I'm a twin, and my twin brother actually lives in northwest Florida in the USA, so uh, he's been there for 24 years. So I, I must admit, I, giving his, he's my best friend, uh, other than the, the beautiful woman, Michelle, that I, I'm the husband to, who's also my best friend, but I never imagined growing up that but Dennis would live so far away, so I can really relate to folk that have uh, international family. But yes, I'm really lucky. I had servant leaders as parents. I did not know that language when I was young. We're traditionally a very strong blue collar family. And uh, when we, when my twin brother and I were 10 years of age, Rob and Susan, our parents sat us down as they had done with all of my siblings and said, where do you want to go to secondary school? And dad and mum looked at me and I said, I want to go to university. And dad's like, you want to go to university? I'm asking you about secondary school, uh, which you call high school, right? Yeah, and yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah I, w- I want to go to university. He said, well, where are you going to go to secondary school? I said, well, the local boys' college, if that's okay. And he sort of scratches his head and he turns to my twin brother and he says, Dennis, where are you going to go to school? And Dennis says, oh, I've heard they have to do way too much homework at those <laughs> boys' colleges. <laughs> Yeah, I want to go to the local technical school where all my brothers are and have been, and I want to be a tradesman like you. So dad says, okay, fine. He comes back to me. He says, so why do you want to go to university and what are you going to do there? I said, I have no idea. I just know I've got 10 thumbs and I don't want to be a tradesman. And I'm pretty smart at school and I think I should go to university. So he says, all right points at me and says, right, you can go to the local boys' school. This is the one we'll send you to. Points to my twin brother, says, you can go to the local technical school with your brothers and become a tradesman. And he points at himself and he says, and I'll go and get a second part-time job. He already had a full-time job. He already had one part-time job. He said, I'll go get a second part-time job to pay for you to go to that local boys' school. And he did. And I'm very grateful that I actually completed my university degree, my first university degree, three weeks before he passed away. And wow. I, I was, I was wow. nursing for two years with my mother during with his cancer leading up to that point. But it was, you know, you know, that was classic servant leadership. It wasn't until many, many years later that I learned about servant leadership or leadership 2.0 and discovered, you know, my parents had done that their entire lives. Now I've got five children of my own, which is a large family for the modern world. We were chatting before the session about Melbourne, Australia, being the most locked down city in the world. What a great title. <laughs> yeah, the claim to fame. <laughs> you know, and, and just how my, Michelle and I, both of us, everything we've learned about leadership was required for us to lead our family through such an extraordinary period of time. We're really, really proud of our five children and how they've done that. We had our ups. We definitely had our downs like everyone. And my company, it's 15 years old, just gone. Back on the 7th of February, we turned 15 years old. And, you know, what I basically do is I, the company's called Organisations That Matter, and I work with organisations that understand they've got human beings in them and human beings matter. Okay, that's why the, the company's called that. I tend to work with companies that are already pretty good at what they do, but you would both understand there's an exponential difference between being good and great. Mm-hmm. Actually, a very difficult journey to go from here to there, and that's generally who I work with across all sorts of industries. Occasionally, I do work with what we might term here in Australia as basket cases. <laughs> <laughs> I think we call them that here in North America okay. too. Okay, cool. So, you know, we, we work with, in some cases, we work with basket cases when they understand and they, they put their hand up and say, hey, it's not going well at all. We really want to change things up. We want to rip it up. We want to, we want to start again and, and we'll go on those sorts of journeys. But I definitely don't work with people who are desiring to tick a box. And usually that's an HR box, human resource mm-hmm. type box. I'm not about human resources because we're absolutely not human resources. And we'll probably talk about that later. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, is that your the mission that you're on with this whole servant leadership slash leadership 2.0, because that's what we call it and what our, our audience will recognize is to take these businesses that focus on mattering from good to great. So what does that look like? First and foremost, just help our audience sink into the difference between the indicators of a good business, the indicators of a great business, and then some of what that journey might look like. 
Okay, so one of the indicators is going to be your engagement scores for uh, your staff. So that's what they say positively about your organisation. It's about how they advocate for the organisation and it's about how they serve the organisation willingly above and beyond what they are meant to do. So when you're good, you're going to be sitting at around about the 65th percentile. And that will flow through to your financial performance and you'll be getting reasonably good financial performance but there can still be a lot of command and control type leadership in those organisations. You're not truly tapping into the um, innovation and intuition and the wholeness of, that people can actually bring to a job when they're actually working at the intersection of what I describe as the intersection of their talents, the things that they're actually good at, and their passions. Mm-hmm. Now, that intersection, when the great organisations are helping the people in the organisation identify their talents, actually understand what they are and identify their passions and where possible enabling that intersection is actually quite large when you know those two factors and enabling people to work in them. The engagement scores go up. When they go up well above that 65th percentile, Robin Susan, we know through research that your financial performance goes up. Now, this is for for-profit not-for-profit and government agencies. This is not just about being a for-profit entity because money matters for everyone. The bottom line matters everywhere and so does productivity, okay? The good organisations equally, they will have right at this moment mistakes occurring, errors occurring in the organisation by good folk that for all intents and purposes based on skills and training and experience actually should not and ought not be happening, but are happening. Mm -hmm. And every single time that happens, those er errors need to be fixed. And you've probably had this experience too, no doubt the audience has, that is it just one person that's involved in fixing that problem? Most likely not. No, correct. It's more people. Now, that, that means rework. Now, This is not anti-learning. We have to learn. We're human. We're going to have mistakes. I'm not saying there's no mistakes. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. we're not about perfection here. We're absolutely not. Mm -mm. But it's when mistakes are happening that really just shouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. And the rework that's required absolutely has to reduce productivity and has to have a negative impact on your financial performance. The great organisations, the one where Leadership 2.0 is happening, is we know there's a significant reduction in rework, which flips to productivity. Mm-hmm. So the very focus a lot of command and control leaders want, which is the numbers, is actually created by treating people as human beings and whole human beings. I know you two know that already. <laughs> I'll does, never get does, I'll never get tired of hearing it. Are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I mean obviously we love this and and like the statistics back it up and we can talk we talked about that before. But Gary, you know, you mentioned to me that in in some aspects the pandemic was silver lining to you because it allowed you the time to write your new book. So let's talk about that. Like what was the inspiration for Disruption Leadership Matters? Well, right at the start of the pandemic, my my business got hit very hard. Like work that was booked in just walked out the door when people panicked, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'd been, I wrote my first book, What Really Matters for Young Professionals in 2010, and I'll be brutally honest, it was an okay book. I am much prouder of this effort, right, the second (laughs) time around. You learn, of course. Yeah. Um, And I, I, you know, the success of the business had meant I'd just been too busy. And, And equally... I've chosen a, a life path to be, to have, if I, you know, I chose to have five children. So I, I equally chose to be a present father and I've been very actively involved in my children's lives and I have balanced that out with the work that I do. So I, I just call that life balance. So my family matters and, and I've made uh, deliberate choices about that. So we filled our book with work as much as what was appropriate for my balance, but I didn't have time to write the book. So there, all of a sudden there was the gift of time. And look, a couple of months later, the work started to come back in. But equally, Rob, I witnessed close to home some very clear examples where people who talked the talk about leadership 2.0 or servant-type leadership behaved immediately by we need to reduce headcount. This is a numbers game. 
we need to save money from the salaries to pay for all the non-human parts of the business. And good folk, through no fault of their own, found themselves stranded. And it was appalling behaviour. It really was. It was just staggeringly appalling with no regard for people that in some cases had spent decades with these organisations left on left to their own devices. And, you know, the company's saying it's all because of there, we've got to protect our bottom line. Well, what's such small, you know, sightedness going forward? Uh-huh. So, I, what, what I thought was, was I could write a whole book about the negative human resource view of the world. I could do that. <laughs> you know, let's get really negative. And, and, and you spoke at the start, Rob, about, about healing. And, in fact, Robert K. Greenleaf, who, who started uh, Servant Leadership, healing is one of the 10 characteristics of a servant leader, as you, as you would both know. And it's just so important. And, and equally with healing, as you said, Susan, you've got to have compassion. You've got to have compassion to do that. You've got to go, there's things I don't understand about these leaders. So the nature of disruption, right, so this is then leading me to what I thought I would write about, gosh, when we were talking disruption in early days, even though we didn't know how long this pandemic was going to go for, I think we had that global six-week lockdown to start with. <laughs> Doesn't that seem like forever ago? That's right. <laughs> and <laughs> two years ago, we had two weeks in the calendar. <laughs> That's right. And and so this disruption starts. Now, the, dis- the word disruption for me means step change, no longer incremental change or organic change. It means step change. So mm-hmm. what if there's an opportunity where I go and find the leaders that are leading right now human beings, not human resources, and I share their stories? So in the book, I've got two negative stories to highlight the, the silliness of the human resources view of the world and how degrading it is mm-hmm. uh, for human beings and how just not smart is. And then the rest of the book is full of examples backed with theory and in many ways, the eight chapters are a guideline for someone to be able to follow, to lead. So I deliberately wanted to do that as well so that if someone does have this disruption and goes, gosh, there's got to be a better way, I wanted mm-hmm. to provide a guide with real practical examples. And as you both know, a lot of the examples, some of them are massive. They are. They really are. And I'll share some of them in a second. But most of them are what I call one percenters. They're just small things that when you accumulate them over time, make all the difference. And that often is the difference between good to great too, those, those multitude of one percenters. I think that's where we got to dig, right? Is like, yes. and, and just understanding what some of those, you know, small decisions are, right, that leaders can make. Because I think this is the one thing that has been a silver lining in the disruption itself is this This has kind of leveled that playing field in leadership. Not one leader on the damn planet, whether that's in the home or in your business or in your community, has not been disrupted <laughs> by right. this pandemic. I think that's what's kind of in a humanistic kind of a way, kind of beautiful about it, right? It's like we're, we're all kind of going through this together. But but we know, we know that we still have a huge gap, right, between leadership 1.0 and 2.0, despite what the last two years has really, you know, shook loose and, and brought to the surface for us to see is no longer working or serving our people, right, in the ways that we're leading. So what are some of those small decisions that our leaders really need to make right now, right? So that they can really start to close that gap. I mean, especially the ones that might be hiding their head in the sand still in avoidance and trying to resist the inevitability of this leadership 2.0 movement that's happening. Well, that's a great question, Susan. And, and the first place is the leaders really need to sit back and go, what do I really believe about leadership and what do I really believe about the people that I'm leading, okay? Mm-hmm. Because if I believe leadership is all about me, and, and the problem with the traditional hierarchy mm-hmm. is it actually points to the top mm-hmm. as, a, as a metaphor, as an icon saying, hey, it's it's all about those folk at the top. And what I've always loved about servant leadership and leadership 2.0 is by f- inverting that pyramid, and I know it's just, again, another metaphor, but mm-hmm. the first time I saw it, it actually had the ultimate customer sitting at the top, actually named in there, you know, for a, 
for a hospital service, it was the patients. Mm -hmm. For a university, it was the students. Mm -hmm. You know, for a, for a legal firm, it was the clients, whatever language they use, right? And I've never seen it when it's drawn that way, ever. I've never seen them on the chart, ever. Mm -hmm. So who's leadership all about? So it really starts there, Susan and Rob. It really starts with, you know, what do I really think? And, and here's the kicker for me, and I've never found anyone who's had a strong argument against what I'm about to say. One, one of my heroes is Michelle Hunt from dreammakers.org, a, a beautiful, amazing African-American woman. Her story about growing up in military bases as the only African-American family in the 1950s on in southern states in the USA. I mean, wow. just from, think what that was like, you know, mm -hmm. racist as you can imagine every single day. And, mm -hmm. and the, the, the dream makers that she describes her parents, now, she ends up an advisor to President Clinton. So I'm not going to fill in the whole story, but go check her out, dreammakers.org. Mm -hmm. Then she leaves the government sector, the not-for-profit sector, and goes into the dark side of the corporate world with Max Dupree and Herman Miller. And when she starts, she thinks she's going to be the head of HR. And he says, no, you are going to be the head for people. Oh. And she people wants to later. argue with him. You know, she wants to argue with him. He says, no, you are the head for people. That's what you're here for. And, she, you know, what a great, great flip. But she also quotes Max and says that leadership is a serious meddling in other people's lives. Leadership is a serious meddling in other people's lives. So what, what, what does that mean? Well, what she means is formal leadership to start with. She means when you have the title, you need to respect it and understand that people who care about their jobs, right, and that's most people. Look, it's not everyone, but it's definitely most people from my experience. You know, there's enough stress you take home to your family just caring about trying to do a good job at that level, yeah? <laughs> when you then layer on top of that stress the behaviour of the leader, that's meddling behaviour. It might be taking credit for stuff that you did that they're claiming for themselves. It might be yelling at you because they're higher in the hierarchy and they just can. It might be belittling you. It might be not being considerate of the fact you've got two children in hospital and they're laying more work on you with tighter deadlines and not even thinking about the wholeness of a human. When you take that home, that stress home with you, right, this is the serious meddling part, that impacts someone's family. Now, mm -hmm. I, don't have, I don't have the data on this, but you don't have to guess too hard that that's impacted in broken families over time. Mm -hmm. And when families are breaking in local communities, that affects the local community, that affects the local sport clubs, the local schools with what the kids and the parents are going through. And then in the end, that affects society. So mm -hmm. I... So I take the leadership as a serious meddling in other people's lives to mean, you know what, you you got to take responsibility for your role as a formal leader in an organisation because guess what, if you're, if you're meddling with people, if your behaviour is doing that, then you're actually impacting society in a negative way and you, you don't have the right to do that. So the starting point is really the leaders going, what do I think about leadership? And what am I willing to change when I realise that what I really think is actually I'm not a higher evolved human being because of my title. <laughs> it's just my job, right? <laughs> yeah. I got to ask, like, because I obviously see resistance to that showing up all the time in the mindset of a 1.0 leader, right? It's like, first and foremost, that wakes up their insecurity, right? If you're pointing out their inadequacies or their deficits in terms of their broken strategies. But it is the, the resistance in terms of people in either waking up the insecurity or them not wanting to let go of the power itself, right? Because that would mean that they would have to go on this whole journey towards, yeah, opening up space that they're obviously not really wanting to go into, right? Because that's a lack of control or it's a loss of power. And a lot of these 1.0 leaders, like that's how... That's how they know to operate, right? Is that command and control. So my question to you is like, how would you help them to get over that hump? What would your coaching to them be? 
Well, I think for starters, they probably wouldn't engage me as their coach because they're not in the mindset <laughs> to do that, unfortunately, right? Yeah, what I yeah. think what I think's gonna going to happen is the great resignation. And, and I, this is a point I really want to highlight here. What probably needs to happen by people that are participating in the great resignation, because if they're choosing to leave a culture, which is from the evidence that we're seeing, actually what's happening. When mm-hmm. I think I, I know at least some states, uh, some data from the states in August and September of 2021, approximately 4.2 million people quit jobs in both of those months and mm-hmm. half of them didn't have a job to go to. So 4 Point two out of eight point four million people did not have a job to go. They have quit a culture. They have quit leaders. Right mm-hmm. now, where those people go. So, so the first point is, leaders might be cornered. One point oh leaders might, in fact, end up being cornered if they've got no one to lead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's, might force the change. Right. That, that's but, that, that's the coaching for their mindset, though, is to realize that because of what we're postulating here, right, with this whole movement is that they're not going to have people to lead if they keep hanging on to that rung on the ladder, right? Like that's the reality that this great resignation finally has proven, right? And in regards to why this is so requisite for them to to get uncomfortable and even want to go on that journey. Yeah, and and Michelle Hunnigan, she said to me recently, she she's not calling it the great resignation. She's calling it the great soul searching. And you will love yeah. this reference. She says, people are seeking organisations that are worthy of their commitment. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, Gary. That's what we're seeing too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I just, I did a webinar with Ten Spot last week, and. They had ran a study with their customers, and it said 56% of people have managers that make them want to quit their job. Let that sink in. And that talks Let Exactly. Let that hang. Yeah. And so, again... So you're, you're right, Susan. The coaching point is, hey, this is this is coming. So if people now, this is the really this is the kicker here, and this is something I'm going to encourage those folk that might be listening that may have may be participating in the great resignation or the great soul searching. If you go for a job, and the people that are going to hire you through that process come from HR, they've actually got HR in their title, which means human resources. Alarm bells, folks. like really would you really go there and that whole world is not going to change if people keep going there like maybe we've got to vote with our feet maybe we've got to say gee that you say a lot of the nice things but you actually got this thing like let's not pretend hr folks is an acronym for human resources (laughs) that's taylorism scientific management that came from henry ford in 1911 it's 20th century Arguably, the 20th century was awesome. But you know what? 22 years into this century, I think we've discovered a lot about the 20th century wasn't so awesome. The way we treated our planet and depleted its resources actually wasn't so awesome. And in fact, all this wealth that we created wasn't distributed all that fantastically. And a lot of people got treated as widgets in organisations, and that isn't so good either. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe there's a lot about the 20th century. We need to leave there and get into the 21st century with 2.0 leadership. Mm-hmm. That's part of the coaching too. Like mm-hmm. let's really get serious about what we're trying to do here, folks, and make leadership not about me. Let's make it about those I'm serving. I love it. Mm-hmm. Now, Gary, I want to dig into one of these examples that we spoke about yeah. on our previous call. You mentioned there was a company out of Asia that really leaned into their people when the pandemic started. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, absolutely, Rob. I love I love that you've asked me this question because uh, Marcus Pitt, who wrote the testimonial uh, on the back uh, of the book and is uh, works for Deloitte out of out of Singapore, put me on to the CP Group based in Chai, Thailand and the CEO Super Chai Chai Ravanant. And Super Chai leads an organisation that has four hundred thousand employees across twenty countries. It is big. It's in agribusiness, so it grows food, and it also has a a huge element of 7-Eleven retail stores throughout Asia. Right at the start of the pandemic, Super Chai gets his leadership team together and says, hey, folks, 
not one, not a single human being out of our 400,000 people are going to lose their job out of this pandemic. And this was repeated several times through the pandemic. So it wasn't just something he said at the start. He maintained this focus throughout the two years that, that it continued for. And he said, not one, you know. You know what you need to do, please? You need to go to your non-human budgets, your non-salary budgets, and find savings to pay for the salaries of the people we're going to keep in our business. Wow. Right? That's a wow, right? That is a massive wow. And you need to find money from your non-salaries line items to pay for the retraining we are going to have to do and the re-resourcing with physical resources so people can do it and work from home. You need to find money to pay for that outside of the human beings' uh, salaries. Wow. Also, you're going to love this. If you thought that was a wow, listen to this. He says, (laughs) I want you to find out which of the, our 400,000 people have a partner who works for someone else who has lost their job? And because we can, we're going to give them food vouchers because that doesn't, we can do that at gross, right? We can do that cheaply. We make the food. But let's give them food vouchers so they don't have to worry about feeding themselves throughout this pandemic. Wow. Now, on top of that, the CP group has, he, what Super Shy says, I don't need governments to tell me what I should be doing for this earth we live on. So we have a 2030 zero emissions target that we've imposed on ourselves and by 2030, a zero waste target. So how holistic is all of that? And right. we're going to sustain them throughout this pandemic. We're, gonna, we're not going to drop that stuff. Mm-hmm. We need to innovate. We need to quickly learn. We need to pivot on so many levels. Let's get up and go and do it. And everybody who's listening is applying for the CP group jobs now. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. You know, I mean, look, it's just such a wonderful example. You know, Rob Clayton from Nutrient Ag Solutions here in Australia, they're Australia's largest agricultural business, you know. When I reached out to Rob at the start, he goes, Gary, 48% of the food on any single plate in Australia, we touch in one way or another. He goes, and as the managing director of this company, I realised we have such a massive role to play, but I've got to help the people, the 7,000-odd people in the organisation feel safe to go to work Mm -hmm. because they need to go to work to keep serving the farmers, Mm -hmm. right? So one of their factories that they've got here in Melbourne, which would make chemicals for insecticides and stuff like that, they immediately retooled, immediately, like in days, to make hand sanitizer. Remember hand sanitizer was the big thing? Remember that? <laughs> so they sent out hand sanitizer to their 750 stores around Australia, and they are literally right around, you know, some really remote places included. And that was to help staff feel um, safe. But not just for them. They said, go and give the hand sanitizer to the local schools, police station, ambulances, medical centres, also our competitors because their competitors collectively put the other 52% of the food on the plate. And the communication that they were doing for their people to help them feel safe to go to work, Rob's competitors, Nutrient's competitors, started tapping Rob on the shoulder and saying, what, what are the messages you're giving your people to feel safe? Because our folk aren't feeling safe and they're not wanting to go to work. And he, he said to his leadership team, give our competitors all the information that we're sharing. All the information because they need to stay operating like we do. What a great mindset. You know, and that was just, now, did Rob just, suddenly think that way or did he already believe that stuff what do you think well i just can't help but remark on his abundance mindset that to me is what you're describing right is the difference between the leader who was triggered in their amygdala into scarcity right because that's what disruption does it opens up uncertainty and that's our brain's response typically to uncertainty 
But he so clearly was not triggered in that way. If anything, he went to the opportunities like that, right? And he went to the opportunities in terms of how he could serve resources to the others, right? Like the other people around him. So I think that's that's what I noticed. And I, I don't know. What do you think, Rob? Do you think that that just is baked in his brain and he just had that mindset going for him? Or do you think that that took some brain training? It would obviously require a lot of healing. Yeah. Otherwise, you would never be in that place. Mm-hmm. Even if you were thinking of it as a strategic move to, to, to take the other 52% of the people, if you were coming from a place of that, you mm-hmm. would go about it differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... Clearly, it's coming from a place of, I want to help as many people as I can, and this is how I can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and understanding understanding your whole system that you're operating in mm-hmm. and understanding, you know what, that abundance mindset is just it's just required. You know, it, this is the this is this is not a time to be competitive. Now, believe you, Rob's competitive. Don't worry about that. You know, he he, he is when he has to be. But when when the world said, "Hey, we need we need you to do A, B, and C," for he, he was he was already there. And look, he's a massive reader. Loves his audio books. Travels a lot, as you can imagine. Although wasn't able to do it for a while. I want to <laughs> also want to flip to a much smaller size because I've got the really big global examples and and, and, and Australian company examples, but I've also got small companies because everyone, as we said at the start, everyone was affected and I really wanted to show everyone. So Ben Kenyon, who's the managing director of Homewood Consulting, which is an arboricultural um, scientific uh, management company, which basically means they assess trees for their health and they do it right around the country, but they are based in Melbourne. With our states, you might be familiar with the story that in Australia, we discovered we're actually still a bunch of colonies and um, <laughs> the colonies have Sorry. more power than the federal government yeah. and they locked down our borders. And, and, and he, yeah. like he, his business like just got really hit badly and it's a small business, you know, with 15-odd people and he doesn't have on his little small farm just outside of Melbourne, you know, a big dam full of gold sitting there to pay for a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. But he also knew this work's not going to disappear. This work is going to need to be done. So he, he got the folk in and they had a really open conversation about how we're going to manage and how we're going to do this together, <coughs> excuse me, which which they did. They came up with some solutions to to help them get by using leave and all sorts of things, right? Lots of companies did this. But his intent was... I've got to keep as many human beings engaged and feeling safe about their income as I possibly can, but I've equally got to do that for my own family. So it's a tricky balance. Now, he did not know when he did this in May of 2020 that in June of 2021 we were going to have some extraordinary storms hit Melbourne, and those storms came from the southeast Normally, our storms come from either the northwest or the southwest. So when you think of our old growth trees and their root systems, they're actually protecting. They're built into the ground on the on the eastern side of the tree and less on, in fact, the western northern side of the tree. That's The trees have grown that way over centuries and thousands of years to protect themselves. So this extraordinary storm event wiped out all these trees we had thousands of thousands of homes without electricity, et cetera. Now, because they still had all the team, the team said, right, the admin staff who would never normally go out said, hey, we'll drive the four-wheel drives while the arborists can assess the trees more quickly, either physically or with their drones, sometimes even moving, so that the roads could be identified to be safe, to be cleared, so that people could get power back and we could actually clean up this really horrific situation, which had wiped out lots of homes and all that sort of stuff. Now, if he had have gotten rid of people, got rid of headcount at the start, he wouldn't have been able to take that opportunity. Right. <laughs> he wouldn't have been able to do that. And he wouldn't have been able to work with a uh, couple of the folk that they've got interstate to help them sustain the business there. You know, and technology helped a lot with all of those sorts of things. So, in fact, by the end of the pandemic, the business has grown quite substantially. 
Yeah, well, because he understood the importance of safety. And that really is what that circles back to, right? It's that you, 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 you're talking, Rob, about doing the healing. I mean, that's what we're talking about in the difference between those who have stayed in scarcity because of the disruption and those that have been able to migrate towards abundance and seeing the opportunity to maybe invest in their people or invest in their communities or invest in wherever it was that they saw the opportunity to serve. But that fundamentally is the difference is the respect for the safety piece above Mm. all else. Yes. That psychological safety that I know you've had an interview recently about and how important that is. And, and Mm. where I tap into psychological safety in the book is, is how it relates to the quality of our conversations that we have. And, And this is the, this is the essential skill that I think is is missing in most places, and it's missing because one of the, the 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 strange things I might say is that water is to fish as conversation is to humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get it, has, and I agree. Yeah, <laughs> a fish has no idea it's in water until it's not anymore, and and you know you wherever you might go fishing, as soon as if the fish is still alive and you take it off the hook, it's going crazy trying to get itself back in the water. Like every essence of its being is going, this isn't right. I need to get back into that stuff, whatever it's called. But because we can all fundamentally speak, we all think we're really good at conversation Uh and not enough focus and effort goes into the skills of conversation and in particular listening. I mean, all the research in the world says, you know, Leaders 2.0 are great listeners. And it starts with listening for understanding. But what does that really mean? It's 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 about do I understand what the other person just said? Don't have to agree with it, but do I understand? Because once we know, once we get the messages that someone understands what we said, our psychological safety goes up. Mm-hmm. And then we're more comfortable to contribute further to the conversation. Now, of course, you layer in, um, different languages and and people who are speaking in in this case say English, which might be a second, third, or fourth language for them. So their vocabulary is less, and so we've got to listen for everything that's not being said, and try to understand that and check and all of that stuff. So I really believe, and and that's why one of the chapters is on is on the conversational skills to create high quality conversations because I've got a little uh, loop that the quality of our conversations leads to the quality of the decisions that we make. That then leads to the quality of the actions we take. And over time, that leads to the quality of our overall performance. If our quality of our conversations is actually poor to start with, what does that mean for the loop? Broken down loop. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of leaders, a lot of 1.0 leaders just aren't even aware that they're in that broken loop. That's the problem right there. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully, you know, if if we can encourage folk, and, and look, obviously my book's not the only resource here. We've got the Leadership Launchpad Project. There's another resource. We've got so many resources. Winning Mindset Resource, for example, as well, Susan. Thank uh, you, sir. <laughs> to, to help folks actually do this. And, and all it takes is that, you know, I believe in the mental model that, that oxygen and learning are of equal value today. Love it. Gary, I love it so much. And we have to ask you this question. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, I want to be known as, in Australian terms, someone who had a crack, had a go, someone who was willing to to show some courage and bravery and and get out there and and shake the tree, but, did it, I would love that the legacy was people said he did it respectfully and he, you know, helped the world in maybe just a small way be a, be a better place. And, you know, maybe that's not overly unique, but that's really what drives me. And I believe that, again, the workplace and leaders, impact, in, in fact, are the leverage point for a, a great aspect of that that legacy, which is why I focus on working with leaders because I think, Equally, that they can have that negative meddling impact on people's homes, the opposite is equally true. They can, they can actually help people's homes be much better places. 
mm-hmm. you know, and people might never know I had a role in that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's, that's cool. I, I'm definitely not a, here, to, here to be famous. I just would the people that know me and love me, you know, they're the sorts of things I'd like that they they said about me. That, you know, he had to go. You know. You know, I ran 11 marathons, and if you saw my body, it's not a marathon running body. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you saw my English at school and I've written two books, you'd say he shouldn't write two books, uh, <laughs> all those sorts of things. If you saw my first-year university grades for my first degree, you would say he should never be operating a, cons- a high-performance consulting business for 15 years. <laughs> a hero's so, journey. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And it's the data backs it up. There was, I th- I believe it's the Neuroscience of Trust article, but it talks about employees that work at a high trust environment experience 28 or 29% more well-being. So obviously, I mean, that's what we believe in here. Um, yes. So obviously we're on the same page there. Now, Gary, obviously for people out there, if they want to check out your book, Disruption Leadership Matters, lessons from for lessons for leaders from the pandemic, they can head over to Amazon and find it there. It's also on Kindle as well. Is there anything else you have going on that people can follow you or where can people find you? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, they can also go to the Books Direct website at disruptionleadershipmatters.com. My organization's website is orgsthatmatter.com. So for short, orgs is short for organizations that matter. So orgsthatmatter.com. Definitely find me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm happy for people to connect. You don't have to do the follow thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure why LinkedIn pushes for that, but I'm happy for people that might uh, want to share on the journey to absolutely reach out and connect. So they're the easiest ways to get. I'm on Twitter, but other social media platforms, not so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll drop uh, those websites and Gary's LinkedIn in the podcast notes if you're looking for him. Definitely, you'll have it there for us. Obviously, hit subscribe to the Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform and share this show with other leaders in your life, especially if they're on their journey towards Leadership 2.0, because we had some incredible examples today that you can start pulling some some of that towards your organization. And obviously for anything, services, leadership development, one-on-one high-performance leadership coaching and mindset, head on over to EliteHighPerformance.com for all of those things there. Susan, this one was a great one. Do you have anything you want to leave us with today? I just got to circle back. I know our peeps weren't on the mic or on the record yet when we were riffing here at the start of this hour with Gary. We were talking about, <laughs> you know, how we were able to navigate this disruption as leaders in our home. And we were both kind of connecting and resonating on how grateful we were that we had instilled that full sense of your learning is your responsibility, that self-leadership piece in my 10-year-old, your five children. But yeah, I think it it really, really makes the case, this conversation in terms of why we believe so wholeheartedly in this progressive 2.0 leadership style, right? Is because we both riffed on how we saw that showing up in service to the sustainability of their learning and their growth. Yes. And so I'm just so grateful for you, Gary, because I feel like this really makes the case for any of those 1.0 leaders out there that are really resisting the change or resisting their ownership of that responsibility that they have for their learning. You heard it from Gary, folks. Learning is akin to oxygen. So if you're not learning about this stuff as a leader, are you claiming your responsibility? Are you owning your role in that? I don't think so. Not after this interview. (laughs) (laughs) But equally, we still care for you. We really care for those folks. With all the compassion. Yeah, that's it, don't we? We care and and we would love to help. We would love to help. Yeah. Yeah. That's the call. How about you, sir? And that's, I echo Gary, is we understand you more than you probably realize. Mm -hmm. And I know how hard this journey is because I've done it. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I talk about healing and Gary talks about the quality of conversations, 
and we talk about safety, the first thing that I think about in the healing journey is becoming safe within our own selves. Mm. And often 1.0 leaders are not. Mm -hmm. And you may not even know you're not. Mm -hmm. The quality of the conversation, Susan, you know this, between your mind and your body is the part is the window for you to understand and start to see the what is happening and the safety that you have in yourself. Mm -hmm. And once you become safe within yourself, it is so incredibly easy to be safe with other people and to cultivate that safety in teams or one-on-one -on -one or however you want to do it. Mm. So that's my call to you is open up that window and have a look. Gary, this was an incredible interview. And honestly, we should have booked you for two hours. I know we could have done another hour. <laughs> Round two. We're coming yeah. for you. I'm happy with that. I hope, I hope my Australian accent uh, has gone down okay with your audience. So We love um, it. You know, I, I did get told, you'll love this, in a university presentation, I got told at the end of the presentation, Gary, we we love really love what you said, but it it just didn't match that what was coming out of your mouth was in that accent. And I went, okay, tell me more. And they said you needed to sound more English. <laughs> <laughs> I said thank you for that feedback, but in my head I went, that's feedback that I'm going to let go. <laughs> I'm not changing my accent. You're not seeing me. I don't feel safe. <laughs> I saw I saw that episode of Ross on Friends when he tried to be English and he's not English. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I I definitely took a lot from this interview and I loved it, Gary. I really appreciate you joining us, everybody. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone. <laughs>